to the Risk Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Bennett Whitehouse from the Scott Insurance Risk Performance Group. I had the honor of moderating a panel of experts in Nashville, Tennessee, to discuss cybersecurity and its importance for your company. We've captured that conversation and turned it into a two-part series here on the Risk Matters Podcast. Please enjoy part one of this series on this important topic. Good morning, everybody. My name's uh, Chris Morris, and I'm a partner at Benefit Communications. We're a employee benefits technology and communication firm uh, that work with customers across the United States, but located here in Nashville. Thank you. Uh, Darren Mott, retired FBI special agent, spent 20 years working cyber crime and cyber investigations and managing cyber squads across the U.S. Also did counterintelligence my last 10 years and kind of blended those two things together. Currently, I'm a senior staff member for Quantum Research in Huntsville, and uh, we manage a government contract called the National Cybersecurity Operations Center that provides a host of cybersecurity services to largely clients within the defense industrial base at no cost to them. Good morning, everybody. I'm Corey Ross, uh, infrastructure architect, uh, engineer, just the overall general nerd, hacker, <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever title you want. Uh, Comes from a plethora of experience building all sorts of infrastructure. Currently working for Checkpoint Software, uh, known as the Gateway Company, Firewalls, you name it, protect the cloud, end users, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, a lot of uh, stuff have a lot of horror stories. So. <laughs> Good morning, y'all. I'm Rob Harvey with the Waller Law Firm here in Nashville. Been doing the cyber work for 15, 20 years now and have a few hard stories to, to tell. I hope we get a chance to talk about it. The horror stories are the fun ones, but also a little scary. Um, well, today we wanted to start with just assessing cyber risk. How do we understand it? That's really just the first step with any kind of risk. And that's also something I wanted um, to highlight when it comes to property and casualty insurance or any sort of insurable risk that any of your organizations have. Cyber risk really isn't any different than your workers' compensation, your auto, your general liability. There are certain threats that your organization faces. You can build defenses against them. Um, and on the back end, we just ensure any damage that happens. So reality is, with any kind of risk, we need to understand what that risk is uh, before we can start understanding how to manage it. Um, so uh, then the difference with cyber is the risk isn't always intuitive for the layperson, or shall we say the technology agnostic among us. Um, when you start talking about how the internet works and computer networks and all of that stuff, Corey, I'm sure could go into a lot of detail that um, would very quickly even go over my head. So um, I just really want to start off with the basics of, you know, and, and I think, um, Darren, I think we'll start with you. Um, you know, what are the most common threats businesses face today? So we've got a broad um, spectrum of industries here in the room, um, everything from construction to banking. Um, you know, what do you see in security operations and elsewhere? You know, what are the common attacks and, and what should these folks really be preparing for? Right. So if you look at, so FBI every year puts out uh, a report called the IC3 Cyber Threat Report and then for Cyber Crime Report. Number one, threat every year is business email compromise. And the methodology for which that works is varied, um, but it all comes down largely to social engineering. 90% of any intrusion into anybody's network is gonna start with a human factor of someone clicking a link somewhere. I've done hundreds of presentations and one of the lines in my presentation is the reason social engineering works 
because someone always clicks the link. Now, I'm sure, does anybody here have a company that doesn't do fish testing? All right, I would argue now that fish testing is useless at this point because everybody used to seeing it. What you need more of is more of an educational perspective. I, I do a podcast weekly and I spoke to a guy who wrote a book specifically on researching social engineering. Social engineering goes back to the 1800s. It's a whole story on how that happens, but he, is, he has done research that shows that you know, getting hiring a company to do your fish testing has a diminishing return because everybody gets used to seeing the fish fish testing um, and they still click on the link. And that's really your biggest threat. If you don't start looking at threats and vulnerabilities, then you're not going to be able to address your risk. There's a slide on your table that shows um, a risk pyramid that I show in all my presentations. And most entities or companies aren't even aware of what the threats are that are targeting their companies. So everybody knows about the script kiddies down in level one, and you can kind of block those with basic firewall rules. But when you go up to level six, those are your nation state attackers. And every company in this room, I don't know who all your companies are, but I can guarantee you there is a nation state actor somewhere that has targeted and looked at individuals within your company to figure out how to access your networks. Because the nation state attack is probably the most damaging attack out there because we can look at business email compromise, which is going to be in level four there with your criminal attackers, but intellectual property theft, um, the things that you make that are important to your business, nation states want to steal, so they don't have to duplicate them themselves. So from a, you know, a threat perspective, business email compromise is the number one from a financial perspective, as far as general loss, it's like 2 billion a year. Ransomware gets all the news. You can always hear about ransomware, but it's, Business email compromise is 29%, 29 times more loss per year than ransomware. But again, both work because of the social engineering perspective. And your nation state actors recognize that. And if you have clients or you're a company within the defense industrial base, every time a $10 billion contract is awarded to government contractors, Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians all know who got that contract, who their subcontractors are, and start targeting all those companies. So that particular space is huge. Um, and if you ever want to know who hacked you, if you have a compromise, the, what I always say is, you know, it's usually one of three entities. It's either China, Russia, or Iran. Um, and so if you think of this room as your network, if you come in tomorrow and everything's gone, China was here. If you come in tomorrow and this glass was gone, then Russia was here. And if you come in tomorrow and it's on fire, Iran was here. That's how you know, it's a great point. Um, we see that through, you know, email accounts are really the gateway to all sorts of different types of attacks from wire transfer fraud, invoice manipulation fraud, anywhere where communications involving money, supplies, et cetera, are being transferred. Um, a lot of attacks come through that vector. Um, Corey, you spend a lot of your time engineering networks, building defenses. What threats are you thinking about when you're building the technological defense front against these types of threats? Um, so when I come in, uh, I try to focus on uh, the why, uh, why you should have technology. Um, the best way to think of this is Every, are, who all is here familiar with like the uh, attack field chain? Well, you, you are. <laughs> uh, everything is the same thing. It's recon first, like social engineering, right? What can I, what can I do? What can I see on LinkedIn profiles? What are their, uh, everybody's seen these funny little Facebook things like, when did you graduate? Put a picture. Those are usually security questions. Uh, how can I get in and pivot on some information? And then it, it just goes down there. 
kill chain. Um, to get back to answering your question, that once you understand that order of sequence of events, uh, and you understand why you should defend your networks, especially like something like email, you put technology around it to negate the human factor. So uh, AI-based driven things that anti-phishing or uh, intrusion prevention, stuff like that. So uh, technology has to help you. Anything you you throw security-wise into your environment is going to slow your production down. Security, in, in essence, uh, slows your business down. But if you marry the two together, uh, it keeps your business running. <laughs> uh, so it really, there's it's that, that famous word, it depends. Um, everything depends on what's important to you. Uh, awesome. Thank you. Chris, I know you deal with data privacy a good bit. Anything sure. to add on that front? Yeah, just a couple best practices as you look at the employee benefits side. So as you work with your HR departments and you're looking at the benefits front, um, a couple of key items you usually talk about email is, you know, make sure the HR team isn't sending the employee eligibility census via email, <laughs> right? They should be loading it to a secure site. Um, we see it all the time where folks just get in a quick hurry. They maybe have an executive they want to add or somebody, and they may just send some information over in the email. So, you know, some basic items like that. Um, some other items as you pick in employee benefits provider from a benefit administration perspective, um, you're going to be sharing that type of information with them. So make sure in their master services agreement, they have the right insurance limits based on the size of your organization. Um, also, make sure those folks have what's either called a, a SOC 2 certification or a high trust certification. So making sure that there's a third party that is going in and auditing their business practices. So that way they're managing your data on your behalf in a secure fashion, not only with information for you, how your employees are enrolling in their benefits that has secure data about themselves, but also how they're transmitting that data to the insurance providers. So just a couple of recommendations from the best practice. Lastly, we'll go to Rob. Uh, the legal world touches everything we do in business. What, um, what are some legal threats when it comes to folks' digital posture, what they're doing, how their operations work that they need to keep into account when they're both building defenses, but also working with in-house counsel, third-party counsel? Um, what do you see from, yeah, I guess, the legal quagmire space that we need to avoid? We, we see everything, good and bad. Um, first of all, I'd like to make a plug for our hosts here. I've been giving seminars like this for 15 or 20 years, and every every time I say, buy insurance. I don't care who you buy it from, buy it from Scott, buy it from somebody, but buy insurance. I know the company that has, has had people in my seminars at least five times over 20 years, and they only bought insurance last summer. And then two months later, they had an incredibly disruptive ransomware attack that had an incredibly high ransom attached to it. Uh, you know, company was out of operation. They, they had some adequate backup where it would keep limping along, but they had to worry about well, what, you know, what client, what customer, what financial information you want out the door. Um, law firms, of course, we're required to hold everything in confidence. And so, you know, big law firms in New York City are regularly targeted so that the bad actors can get access to the M&A targets. Uh, that's just one thing that goes on. So we, we do everything we can to try to use secure sites. There's a judge uh, out on the West Coast who described Dropbox as just leaving your documents on a park bench. 
secure. Now, I, I don't agree with that because uh, there are ways of having some secure Dropbox uh, uh, document conveyances, but at the same time, you just have to be careful and know what uh, what you're getting into. Awesome. Uh, Darren, you have a focus on education and threat intelligence. What are some of the most common mis misconceptions you hear about cyber risk? Well, the biggest one is I don't have anything anybody would want. That's every, I've never been to a client, well, and I don't, and it's, I'm never going to get hit. I've never been to a, to, a, to a victim. The first thing I said was, well, it was coming. We knew our time was going to be in the box. Here we are. No, so no, one, no one expects to be a victim, and no one thinks of anything anyone would want. I guarantee you, whatever company you work for, if you said, why would someone want my stuff? Tell me what you do, and I can tell you who would want it and why would they want it. Uh, there's always going to be the criminal guys who want it from a financial perspective. Data is valuable. If you go on the dark web, pretty much everybody's email is probably on the dark web somewhere. And chances are a password associated with your email is also on the dark web somewhere that someone can then use to get into somebody's account to do business email compromise. And the best example is if you take a look at the Yahoo data breach in 2015, there were 3 billion account records stolen, username and password. So if we think about what percentage of that 3 billion people even know the Yahoo data breach occurred, give me a, anybody give me a number. So. Let's say on a, on a good, if we think positively, half of the people knew. So that means there's still 1.5 billion records where the username and the email address, I mean, the username and the password still work. Because how many people of that 1.5 billion use the same username and password for all their accounts? Let's let's be conservative and say only 10%. So what's 10% of 1.5 billion bankers? You can know me that number, but I'm sure it's big. Uh, so a lot of people that are using the same username and password somewhere. Uh, and, and multiple places. So how hard is it then for a hacker to want to get into that? So then how do we deal with passwords? So then you have a company that says, well, I don't, you know, passwords are complicated. It's very hard to everybody keep track of all these passwords. Well, then with technology now, it's not. There's password managers that can create passwords. And it really, passwords at this point is all about length, not about different characters. There's There was a NIST document that came out a couple of years ago that said, the numbers and the different symbols really aren't what's going to protect you at your length. So if you're not using a 13 character password or more, you're just asking to be hacked. And there's password managers that can keep, that can allow you to create, I, all my passwords are 20 characters or more, and you have to use multiple passwords for multiple critical assets. In other words, your social media, your email, and your financial accounts at a minimum should have different passwords, not the same. That's why business email compromise works because the same password is used with the same user account somewhere. So I think I went way off track of what your original question was. But... <laughs> That's all right. Love, uh, love some sites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Corey, I want to go to you. I know defenses are, we, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit and, and Darren, I think you mentioned some of it and Corey, you as well, but defenses are both human and technological. Same are the threats. Um, so you know, your IT teams, your third-party cybersecurity groups, they're, they're building technological defenses, whether that's endpoint detection and response software, firewalling, network architecture that's more secure, um, you name it, there's all sorts of different things that we can be done. But, you know, the human element's pretty, pretty intuitive. We would teach people about phishing threats, education on the threats that they face in their day-to-day -day operations at work, uh, what they can do to prevent bad things from happening in that sphere. Um, education, testing, phishing simulations, that kind of thing. But, you know, Corey, from the technological side, where 
a lot of folks maybe don't even understand a lot of what their IT folks are saying. Quite frankly, we go too far down the rabbit hole. I won't either. Mm-hmm. Um, what can an organization do for the folks in the room that maybe work with their IT team or, or run their company? What can they do to understand, assess, and prioritize their vulnerabilities, known and unknown? How do they, how do they work with folks like you to, to understand how open am I and what can I do to fix it? Sure. So I was going to say two buzzwords, um, two types of buzzwords. Everybody's heard of trust and verify and zero trust. Right. So uh, this whole password thing you talked about, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to trust your employees to not use password readers. I could, I could preach it all day long and write it in a policy, but you still have to trust that they're doing it, right? Uh, Hey, you're doing different passwords everywhere. Yeah, man, I am, but they probably aren't. Uh, (laughs) uh, They probably aren't. So, Mm -hmm. what software can you put in it? You can put a shameless plug. Checkpoint has stuff in place that can keep that from happening. Uh, It'll it'll stop it immediately. As soon as they start typing, you see the hatch, immediately stops it, and it keeps that website from storing it, et cetera. So it's pretty cool. So that's the uh, verification part, right? I've sent the trust out. I've written the policy. Policy's free. Software costs money, um, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And then, oh, no, that's that zero trust, right? So, when it comes to uh, that zero trust mindset, it's not just on your end users, it's also with your, your technology. Um, I need to put things in place uh, around my most important assets um, that keep those you know, bad actors from doing bad things, right? I know it's so lamest terms, but this, I, I don't try not to get too, I don't want to get too technical. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's it. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Can I say something about passwords? Yeah. Please do. Um, Darren just gave me kind of a jolt because I don't have 20 character passwords for anything. So now I need to go do that. And I'm also not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'll bet you there are some of us in this room who keep all your passwords and your outlet contacts under your name. So, um, it would be safer if you hand wrote out your passwords and take them to the wall of your home office. Because if somebody <laughs> gets in your house, you have bigger problems than somebody coming to steal your passwords, right? And you have a shot at it, literally, if you decide to take it. So, <laughs> so now I need to go change the passwords and you know, maybe I'll change it to my dog's name is Scott, 1379. Yeah, so they don't have to be hard. I used to sell, so like, I'm from Alabama. So I'm in Huntsville, Alabama. So when you can move to Alabama, you have to make a choice between Alabama and Auburn. Okay, it comes down to that. So it, but it's not hard to come up with a lengthy password that you can remember. So I always tell people, just say, I love Alabama football. Auburn sucks. 31 characters. You can remember what it is. It's not hard to type. Yeah. And, but you can change it up. So that's your banking one, your social media. I love Alabama baseball. Auburn sucks. You know, so it really needs to change. So it's not that. It's not that. Hard to argue with that. <laughs> You can do multi-factor. Yeah, that's uh, one. Take that opportunity 100% of the time. Um, companies like Microsoft don't necessarily have a, a, a native solution. They have Authenticator coming to the cloud. Um, but use use those secondary companies, like Duo or your what have you, uh, to, to implement two-factor everywhere you can. Uh, whether it be even on-prem, especially with a lot of companies moving to the cloud, uh, you have an east-west traffic you have to deal with now as well. So uh, if you have two-factor in front of your databases, for your database engineers, et cetera, et cetera, any, any opportunity, take it for, for multi-factor. Perfect. 
Um, one other thing I encourage most organizations to do, especially after they've reached a certain level of maturity in their cybersecurity posture, is hire cybersecurity consultants to do a full risk assessment and potentially a penetration test as well. Um, and the purpose of doing so is after a certain point, I mean, we all know kind of our strengths and weaknesses as an organization and as individuals. Um, those things you know that you're not good at, you can start to to build up those defenses. But what I've discovered with a lot of organizations is that there are a lot of weaknesses they don't know about, whether that's default passwords on servers or um, you know everything set default from the manufacturer instead of customized to their network. Things that you know to the layperson we really wouldn't understand, but folks like Corey would really deeply know by taking a crack at your system and understanding, oh, wow, that's a weak point, that's a weak point, and I can chain those two together to get inside. Um, so I highly encourage folks, hire some really smart people, third-party cybersecurity, um, you name it, to take a look at your network and, and, and pull out some of those weaknesses that maybe you might not discover on your own. Um, it'll save you, you know, ounce of cure versus a pound of, <laughs> uh, or sorry, ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure. Uh, is, is really what I look at from that standpoint. Um, and I think, you know, especially for some of the financial folks in the room, um, you can do some sort of impact assessment and start to back into what would a financial cost of the attack be? What is the actual damage that can be caused to my organization, whether it's um, delays in operations, business interruption, or just financial impact? So, um, Corey, I know you have a little experience with this. You know, what would be for the CFOs in the room, considering investing in defenses, investing in risk assessments, penetration testing, you know, what's what's your advice from an impact assessment standpoint? Um, I'd say the first thing would be to have a proper tabletop discussion with your your business owners, um, or those area owners, like finance department, HR department, whatever your processes may be, um, to start there uh, and have an honest discussion on. If this process A goes down, how long can the business survive? And uh, you probably know some statistics on this. Um, I, I think the average that I've seen is sometimes in the way two weeks before business has to shut up the doors, business is dead. Mm -hmm. And so, 60%. yeah, and so it's it's a matter of having that discussion and knowing where that point of failure is and figuring out where your maximum tolerable downtime can be. And then once you understand those numbers, you can start to uh, implement your your technology your technology around it your backups and et cetera et cetera to make sure that you can get the stuff back up and operational should the worst case happen and it's not yeah it's definitely a matter of when it will happen. <laughs> so. Chris, Darren, Rob, anything to add on that? Yeah, let me add something about uh, what we just said about having the uh, the testing. The insurance company, when you apply for insurance, they're going to give you a multi-page list of things that you have to have in order to get insurance. You have to have an incident response plan. It has to be adequate. It has to be looked at and tested by the insurance company. You have to have an outside lawyer assigned as your incident response or data breach or ransomware person. I had a company last year call me up and said, hey, just wanted you to know we've listed you on our insurance policy. You're our new data breach lawyer. Great. Hopefully we'll never have anything. I'll never get another call again. I mean, I'm, but, but what I tell them to do is have your plan. Do the tabletop. Test it. Test it some more. Um, a company I know in town uh, didn't figure out that the water and electricity was turned off at their building when there was an attack. So all of a sudden they were out, out of business for a, for a while. They limped back. 
um, when you get your insurance company to pay the ransom, assuming you can't, assuming that uh, is covered, then you don't have any coverage after that. You're bare. So that's a big problem for companies. If you haven't, if you haven't tested adequately and gotten ready and tested and tested and tested some more, make sure you have the right people there. Make sure that the CEO doesn't have to be in the chain of every communication. And, and I know we'll get to this about what's happening when an incident's coming, but make sure that when you have an incident, your first call should be to your outside lawyer. Because what that outside lawyer adds, you hope adds some experience, some knowledge, some talent, but what that lawyer adds is the umbrella of the attorney-client privilege, which you have to have. You need that privilege as soon as possible when you have an incident. Yep. Awesome. So, a couple of stats that will not be pleasant, but the average cost for a single data breach to a company is about $3.62 million. In other words, to clean it up and deal with all the issues with that. And the average attacker is in your network for 280 days before you even realize they're there. So chances are, even if you have a backup, whatever they did is in your backup as well. And I would say, if you have an incident, your second call should be to the FBI. Now, I, I know that's self-serving because it's being the FBI, but they can at least provide you with insight for several things. If it's ransomware, there's a possibility that the Bureau owns the decryption keys for that particular type of ransomware. So they may be able to decrypt your network. Not guaranteed, possible, depends on the type of ransomware. Um, but the other thing is they can help you with... You're gathering evidence, create intelligence that can protect others. So if it's a new kind of ransomware, then there's information in there that can help stop other attacks down the line. And it's better to know who your FBI contact is before you need them, rather than at the time when you really wish you knew who they were. And they will come and give you threat briefings to talk about what the threats are in your community here. So if you're based here in Nashville, you're based elsewhere, they will come and say, this is the threats we see here. These are the big issues that we're dealing with now. How many people in the room know Scott on? That's uh, a lot less than I would have expected. But anyway, he's a retired FBI guy. He used to talk a lot national. So, but again, contact the FBI. They will come and, and they can, you can be a partner with them. Um, and at least you then know who to call if you have an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, playbooks. Uh, have, have these playbooks written down uh, in addition to your... your uh, mm -hmm. Uh, tabletop review. So, uh, a quick example: uh, a friend of mine, a company gets hit for ransomware, didn't have playbooks for what to do, and immediately started panicking. And they they remember, I need to get it off the network, right? Instead of unplugging the network cable, uh, they unplug the power. And what that does is bad for guys like this. They can now no longer do forensic analysis for right. what was running in memory. Yep. And that's really important you to be able to collect that so you mm -hmm. have a copy the case that you see. Right. So. Make sure you don't panic. And I'm going to give the FBI a plug, and I'll tell a story later about the FBI because it's one of their only success stories in this in this area. Uh, but um, <laughs> there are a lot of lawyers who really don't want their, their clients talking to the FBI. I'm not one. I think the FBI are friends. They have helped me on many, many occasions. The biggest problem I've got is that the FBI agents uh, go on to high-paying consulting jobs and start their own companies. And, and so it's a regular succession of people through Nashville who are doing cyber, but it's a great group of people. They're all involved in the RSA. Um, really like working with them. Uh, and Algebaum, who he mentioned, was, I think, one of the first cyber guys attached to Nashville. And the reason is that, God bless him, uh, Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist was behind getting cyber units set up around the country. 
And believe it or not, Tennessee just happened to land one of the cyber units for the FBI. I think there were 12 or 15. 16 originally. 16. So, and, and so we had one housed in Memphis, but most of the guys, I think, were in Nashville. So we've got a great core of people, and they love getting out and giving educational seminars. Awesome. So I think uh, I'm going to shift gears here. Um, risk performance group, one of our tack lines is just improving your odds. Um, we're never going to be perfectly safe. Safe is a myth. That's it's impossible, but we always want to improve our odds against the risk. So once we understand our risk and the potential impact on both our people, our customers and partners and our organization, we need to make a conscious effort to build strong defenses and prevent that attack from happening. Um, and really, ideally, we want to create a system where we can fail safely, um, which requires really a multi-layered approach to security, where when one defense fails, another can potentially compensate. Um, think about multiple slices of Swiss cheese layered on top of each other. Eventually, there's no holes when you try to look through it. Um, cyber defenses work the same way, both human and technological. Um, so, um, you know, that's really as and threats evolve very quickly. I think everyone on the panel can tell you, um, usually faster than defenses evolve, because this is a reactionary industry when it comes to defense and the attackers are on offense. Um, so defenses come in both human and technological form from training and education to policies, procedures, protocols, incident response plans, uh, sophisticated network infrastructure and software. It's a broad range of, of areas to focus on when looking at your organization's specific risk. Um, for, looking, for an organization looking to fold cyber risk into their overall risk management plan, um, I'll kind of leave this open to the panel, whoever wants to answer first, but where would you start and what do you find most important? Um, I was actually having a really good conversation with Dr. White earlier about this and uh, he said something uh, that really fits into this. Uh, as a security professional, I have to be right 100% of the time, where that attacker has to be right at once. So <laughs> it's the same for your business. So um, where would I start? Um, well, obviously, uh, the, the fundamentals. Um, if you're not familiar with the CIA, not the Central Intelligence Agency, that's the uh, confidentiality and integrity and availability, uh, which Ones of those are more important because it's going to lean dependent on your business. Um, if I need to have 100% availability because I'm selling e-commerce, then that site needs to be up all the time. That's your priority. Or if it's I, I run a data company, and confidentiality of my data and integrity of that data is important. Mm -hmm. So you're going to lean your technology towards those spectrums more. Um, but that's where I'd start. I'd start with fundamentals. Another fundamental is just to have best practices in place. The business email compromises. I've, I had clients in the last year collectively lose about 2 million bucks. We got money back twice, but another five or eight money's gone. If, you know, if you're not on top of it right away. And usually the reason those happen is that uh, an email will come in. One side of an email exchange is captured. Darren said that they've been following your company for many months. And so they know who the CFO is. They know when your wire transfers are going out, when giant payments can be made. And they'll email you and say, here's the new wire transfer information. You always pick up the phone, look up the number on the internet and call somebody you know at the, at the other side. You don't respond back to the email because that email has been captured. 
Otherwise, you're just fish bait. And uh, that, that has happened so many times in the last several years, I just can't, I can't even see straight uh, to think of it. Given that Nashville is a great small town, a guy that I know had all of his personal data and his family's personal data stolen. And uh, the bad actor called the bank to arrange for the transfer of the, the family's entire net assets to someplace else. And God bless him, the banker said, this isn't David. I know David's voice. <laughs> so, if it wasn't Nashville, it wouldn't have happened. That concludes part one of our cybersecurity podcast. Look out for part two of the series. Thanks for tuning in to the Risk Matters podcast. Take care.